0: All right. well tonight we move into uh, what I referenced last week a little bit of, and I tried to introduce it, the idea of it anyway. We're moving into a very Jewish section of Revelation, and uh, we're going to see it right away in Revelation 11 and in 12. Uh, We're going to be moving around a little bit historically. Uh, We're going to stay in the in uh, in the future aspect to some degree, um, in our timeline. I don't have it with us tonight, um, but we'll have our timeline where we are in the midst of the seven years. Remember, we are about halfway, and chapter 11 really introduces us to some of the events along the halfway point. Um, We are waiting for the seventh trumpet to sound. That will happen in chapter 11. Um, But the events that it lays out, we aren't really introduced until several chapters later. Uh, And so we're not going to really visit the bowls that are laid out from the midst of the seventh trumpet sound until later. And so we know that the seventh trumpet uh, certainly had an effect and had an immediate response in heaven. But we don't know what its earthly appearance is. Looks like until we get later on in the book, but we come into a section that is very heavily uh, instructive about the condition of Israel during the seven years we have already had an introduction to the one hundred and forty four thousand we're going to find uh, some of them participating here we've had them described for us we're going to have two witnesses that are have obvious Jewish uh, Identification. We are going to have a visitation to the Temple Mount um, once again, and in a future setting to John. Uh, and it sounds a whole lot more like today, but not quite today, because we don't actually have a temple on the Temple Mount for Israel. But in John's uh, futuristic period, when which is future still to us, <clears throat> though not probably very far off, um, there is a temple. Uh, And this is not before the rapture, this is after the rapture. We are halfway through, and I would contend that we are not going back in time yet. He will give us that reference point in a little bit. And so some of this, we are going to be talking a little bit about Ezekiel. We're going to be looking back into Daniel in the next few chapters. Uh, We have to go back into... Uh, several of the Old Testament prophets to really pick up. We're even going to go back to Genesis, we we have to, to address chapter 12. Uh, And then we're going to also look at the history books, um, extra biblical books, to really uh, derive some of the events around the fall of Jerusalem. And so we really have a very, very Jewish section of Revelation. And we saw it kicked off last week. And I tried to explain why I leaned that way um, and what the nature of chapter 10 entailed and uh, going back into the little book and uh, the statement of prophesying again. And certainly Israel is going to be the feature point when it talks about many peoples, tongues, nations, and tribes, or kings, I think, kings, um, Israel is going to be the feature there, but it's going to be engulf all of their neighbors as well as we're going to be confronted with pretty much right away, in chapter eleven. And so, before we get into our text, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord, God, we you thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for its instruction and uh, for its the benefit for the generation that must live through these and periods, and also for us to know that you are faithful and that you are. Uh, consistent, you can be trusted. And Lord, we rejoice also in you keeping your promises and how precious that is to all of us who have trusted in them and look forward to their uh, completion. And Lord, we do pray that as a result of this study that we might uh, have uh, full confidence, fuller confidence in you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 2 starts off, chapter 2, chapter 11 starts off with two verses that uh, have been made a lot of, and for good reason. Uh, we have um, some information given to us, some instructions, some careful de- uh, exceptions. Remember, we saw a little bit of this in chapter 10. Chapter 10, you hear the thunders, but you're not allowed to know what they say. Uh, and so we have purposefully omitted, and similarly, here, we're going to be purposely told not to look at certain things. Let's go and read 1 and 2, and then we're going to pick up on the two witnesses, and then we are going to uh, see the results of their ministry. Uh, we're not going to get to the seventh trumpet. We're not going to finish this chapter, not by a long stretch, but we want to make certain progress. Let's read 1 and 2. It says, Then I was given a read like a measuring rod. An angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Very direct. And so in the midst of his time of, of this revelation, he is taken aside, and he is told now... In, in the midst of this time period, I want you to go down and measure the temple. And he, this is very similar to what Ezekiel's called upon to do uh, for multiple temples. Um, one of the temples particularly that Ezekiel was given instruction to do was giving the temple really what would be in the New Jerusalem. It's, or in the, I'm sorry, not New Jerusalem, the Millennial Kingdom. And so we have here um, another temple. And uh, we are told, go measure it. Uh, we are not really ever given uh, what the measurements equaled out to we 're not really told how much it was. We all know how many were there we 're not really granted a lot of information. Uh, we are just told that he was told to go out and measure it, and we can kind of connect the dots certainly with ezekiel and uh, and you can even think of Nehemiah and going out there and examining the walls. Uh, of course, by then, the temple was constructed that was under the rubber belt. But you have that idea of go out and just see the task and see what it's like. Really what we're being given is some information that the Temple Mount has on it a temple but has limited uh, geography to it. That is, it's very small, very small compared to Ezekiel's temple. Uh, In fact, we are told that you're going to go out there and you're not going to measure the courtyards. Uh, The temple... Uh, require multiple courtyards. And each one coming in closer and closer uh, screened out a certain number of people. And so you have, of course, the inner courtyard where the sacrifice would have happened. uh, And that's where the altar would be uh, for sacrifice. It's where the labor would have been. And so that's where the activity of the priest largely is. Then you have the courtyard of the men where the men were able to, pen, to come into there. No women were there. No real proselytes were there. These were Jewish men who were born Jewish. Didn't convert to it, but rather they were born in it. And so those were born Jews. Outside of that was the courtyard of the women. Again, these are women born into Judaism. And then beyond that is the courtyard of the Gentiles. And that is not the Gentiles as those who, who um, uncircumcised. It is those who have converted to Judaism from uh, paganism. And so these are proselytes. These are those who have accepted the law, have been circumcised, usually as an adult, um, have, have uh, come into Israel. And so you have all these courtyards associated with the, uh, with the Temple Mount. And John would have certainly been familiar with the court's Uh, that are involved around the temple building itself. And so very, very few really got up close and personal to the courtyard, to the temple itself. Uh, Obviously, um, the ones who would be able to see through the gates into the temple uh, would have been only the men. And the ones that were in the inner courtyard were only the priests. And so we find uh, that it was very limited. Uh, You could see the temple, though. Um, Don't think of these courtyards as being great, big, giant walls that you couldn't see the temple. That certainly wasn't the case, even from the Mount of Olives on the other side of the valley. um, Everyone would just sit around and look at the temple. It was that incredible during Herod's time when Jesus is there, and that's when all the discussion happens, what's going to go on with this temple. It was a very visible thing, but the courtyards gave it these layers of access And so, John is told, you go measure it all. You're going to measure multiple things. You're going to measure, first of all, uh, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So, we have this information about this time period. There is a temple, and they are going to be doing sacrifices. There is an altar. And there are going to be people there that are going to be involved in that worship. And so, we are given that much information that during this time period... Uh, still future to us we are going to have a temple on the temple mount we are going to have an altar there where there will be sacrifices implemented and there will be uh, those that will be serving there what's missing is the courtyards don't measure those because they really aren't going to be something that is under the uh, authority of Israel and so we are given this Pretty substantial bit of information. Uh, don't measure it. It doesn't belong to Israel. It's not Jewish. It's been given over to the Gentiles. That is that here on this holy site, on this temple mount, um, it's not going to be entirely dedicated to Israel's purpose. They have a temple. They want to have sacrifices, but they're not going to have the whole temple mount. It's just not going to be available to them. Only a very small portion. and uh, the temple itself, uh, the footprint of the temple itself is not, uh, well, widthwise it would fit within this room. Lengthwise, a li- about this long, maybe a little bit longer. Um, so it would fit in here, almost entirely. So when you think of the temple, we usually think of this huge structure, but in terms of its foundational footprint, it's really pretty small. But it is very tall. And so when we look at that and we consider it, um, we say, well, if it's just the temple and the altar, which means that courtyard where the priests serve, and not these other courts, it's really a very small area that's required in the Temple Mount to accommodate that. Um, We're talking about a quarter acre? We're talking about something very small. of space. And so when you visit the Temple Mount, I've shared this before when we got back from Israel and showed some of those slides. I should have probably bought them tonight to show you. Um, We obviously know what's on the Temple Mount today. And some have conjectured that the dome on the rock has to be blown up for this to happen. And this is the verse that they use to substantiate why that has to happen. And so when you watch movies about the end times and about the Temple Mount... Usually you'll see, like, a, let's see, one I've seen had a lightning bolt from heaven come and blow up the, the dome of the rock to make room for a temple for Israel. Uh, and God's supernaturally intervening to accomplish that. Some people actually have the man of sin involved in that to set up this treaty with Israel based upon that. Um, and that's all very fanciful. Um, and what it ignores is the fact that they don't need the whole Temple Mount. And in fact, we are specifically told they won't get the whole Temple Mount. And that should be instructive for us. Uh, we're not waiting for the Dome of the Rock to be, ex- to be removed, to be raised. We're not waiting for it to be uh, dropped on site um, or vanished. We're just not looking for that. That's not something that we need. What we need is to recognize where the temple site really is um, and then uh, is it potentially available? Is there potentially enough space on there for a temple to be built um, and shared on the Temple Mount with Muslims? Can you imagine that? That would be a really hard thing to imagine. Um, First of all, let's just set the tone here. Um, Many of us overestimate the Muslim commitment to the Temple Mount, um, they really weren't interested at all in it. Not at all until Israel became a nation. And then suddenly they became very interested in it. And suddenly it was a very important place. It was basically a garbage hill. Um, In fact, there's still some rubble up there now just kind of pushed off to the side. And so when you Go there, the, the Temple Mount is not. There are some parts of it that are very nice in and around the uh, Dome of the Rock, but there are some parts of it that are just ignored, um, largely. And so when you arrive there, you think, well, this is all going to be very lush and very extravagant, and it's really not, because the Muslims weren't really committed to it until the Jews became interested in it once they became a nation and were interested in it, now they had to make it so important that they couldn't surrender it to them. They just didn't want them up there. And so in terms of holy sites, it is one of Israel or Islam's holy sites. Um, but it certainly isn't way, way up there. They do not make pilgrimages there. And in fact, um, as a site itself, it's, it's not very often visited by Muslim people. They just don't frequent it. It's just It's a tourist attraction and very little more. Um, There's nothing in there, really. Uh, It's very ornate inside, um, but it really uh, doesn't attract uh, a lot of Muslims. You don't find any of their festivals circling around it. So the Temple Mount is sort of a we-got-it-and-you-don't kind of place in the Muslim mindset. Uh, We we keep it so you can't have it. Uh, And of course every peace treaty that's been attempted here in my lifetime the temple mount has been the focal point the center point of that discussion uh remember the camp david accords and and all that was trying to be attempted there and not very long afterwards we found out that they were this close this close one phone call from getting the temple mount and they didn't even want it all. All they were asking for is a share of the Temple Mount. And uh, uh, who is the guy? The PLO um, Sadat? No. The old PLO guy. Anwar Sadat. Yeah, leading the PLO. Called Saudi Arabia. He literally made the phone call and they rejected it because it's not a Palestinian site. It's not... It doesn't belong to any country. It's Islam's possession, and that takes you back to Mecca and to the religious leadership of Islam, really, to determine its fate. Um, And so, in order for Israel to get a hold of the Temple Mount, you're going to have to see multiple, and particularly Saudi Arabia, but multiple Arab nations willing to concede it willing to allow Israel onto it. And my contention has been that's going to require a very different kind of Arab world than what we traditionally think of. The exciting part is that we are having just such a thing. What's going on just in the last few weeks? Who's the big hero in the Middle East right now? Do we know? Oh, tell me you follow the news a little bit. Who is the great hero in the Middle East right now? The nation of Jordan. Uh, specifically, the King Hussein of Jordan. And uh, who has just taken it to ISIS. He has taken it to them. He has committed, since they burned to death one of their pilots, he has just taken it to them. He is uh, committed to um, uh, invoking the full... Uh, sentencing on their prisoners and if they have a death sentence, he's putting them to death. Boom, 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 boom. Here, These are the people that ISIS says you release them, we'll release the pilot. They kill the pilot. Jordan is putting those people to death. They're executing them. They're on the death row, so to speak. And so, right now we have a very interesting circumstance, uh, a very different one, where we have Muslims uh, addressing Muslims as traitors to Islam. And, that, uh, and it's not the moderate and conservatives that have the upper I'm sorry it's not the moderate and conservatives that are the problem they would willingly for peace and for uh, certainly for at least a season be willing to concede half the Temple Mount it is the radical um, I hate to use that word right, fundamentalist Islamists that are the problem and they're marginalizing them. They are calling them now traitors to Islam. Uh, And this is very important because if there's going to be any progress in Israel taking part of the Temple Mount, it's going to require this kind of attitude that the moderates, um, the more westernized or at least uh, sympathetic uh, with that uh, are going to have to take the stand against the radical Muslims. It is not for Israel to do. Have you noticed how quiet Israel has been in all the turmoil around them? You almost hear nothing about them. They aren't attacking anybody, They, but they are giving a lot of intelligence to whoever needs it. And they, I think they're doing a lot of other things, um, but all way, 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 way under the radar. Um, they're not doing any of this. This is all Islam and the Islamic countries taking care of these Islamists that are fanatical and uh, and maybe even are the purists. Maybe they're the, the fundamentalists. And so this is setting a stage. Once they are dealt with, I don't know if they'll ever be eradicated during this time period. We're going to see a time when that's going to come very soon. But they're going to be certainly marginalized and maybe largely... Um, declawed um, by the other Arab nations at that point it will set a perfect stage for uh, a treaty that would allow Israel access to half the Temple Mount to address the Palestinian circumstances so we have uh, a Temple Mount that's shared well what are we looking for then once we get on the Temple Mount we're looking for where is the Temple supposed to be the Dome of the Rock sits on a rock. Imagine that. Isn't that interesting? Um, well, that wasn't informative, was it? It sits on the rock that the tradition tells us is where, where uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Unless you're a Muslim, Abraham sa- was going to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, for a Muslim, Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. And so we both believe in the story of Abraham, we both believe in the story of what happened on that mountain. It's just they have interchanged the children. Makes sense, right? Because we're the children, they're the children of Ishmael. And so it was Ishmael up there, not Isaac. Uh, He was the child of the covenant and not Isaac. And so that's what they have simply done is just interchanged those and now they have a physical lineage that's uh, connected to that. So the dome sits right there on the rock. And the question that comes up is where did the temple mount sit? Where did the temple sit on the mount? And that has been somewhat debated, Um, and right now it's really hard to get up there. If you go up there with a shovel, you will be arrested and have all kinds of problems. You just can't poke around. Now it wasn't always like that, and back in the 60s and 50s, um, archaeologists were allowed to go poke around, and they did. They did a lot of poking around, Um, and I have uh, my Archaeology of the New Testament volume. Uh, was one of the, written by one of the men who was up there poking around and uh, was very excited because they believed that they had found the foundation stones of the temple. So he knew and he gives very clear archaeological description of where it was and what was in the midst of that those stones. That they were laying them out and they were finding these stones that were foundational and He lays it out, and he says it's, and there's a dome of the spirits there, um, and surrounding that are these foundational stones. Well, we're not allowed to uncover those stones anymore. They, they they're still there, they have not been excavated, Uh, they have not been removed, Uh, so they must still be there. Um, What uh, has happened in that whole area is that an olive grove has been planted, there is still one structure, though, there. The same structure that McCrary, in his book, references. And that's the Dome of the Spirits. So named. And it is the oldest structure on the Temple Mount. Now, unless you think that takes you back to Bible times, it doesn't. It takes you back into the into uh, the Byzantine period, uh, but much, not any farther. Everything on the Temple Mount was completely flattened. Um, for many, 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 many years. And uh, the Byzantines went in and they did put in uh, the Dome of the Spirits. And nobody knows why. Why is it there? Nobody today knows why. Um, McCrary postulates that the um, Dome of the Spirits, in his understanding of the layout of the foundation stones that he's seen, of course, he's not with us anymore, that that would mark where the Holy of Holies would sit. That that would mark the place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, or at least uh, within as far as the Byzantines could tell. Uh, He lined it up with the Golden Gate. And the Golden Gate is sit-askew. It doesn't go straight in. It, It sits and actually points directly to where the temple is. And so the Golden Gate, when you dig down in there, is notched over. And uh, there's actually two golden gates now. They rebuilt the one up here. um, But the original one that they have only found in our lifetime, down deeper, was actually turned. And guess what building it turned and pointed right to? It directed directly to the Dome of the Spirits. The Dome of the Spirits, when I was there, um, I walked up to it, and uh, there's no fencing around there. It's nothing. It's just a little stone building um, very small uh, somebody had an office in it there was a desk and a chair and somebody's library and stuff that's all that's in there I don't know if there's a teacher or if uh, you know they'd sent students out there for <laughs> study. I don't know but uh, just a little office is all it looked like uh, and it sits there uh, there's no other structure around it to this day it is completely free of all structures except for that one. It is to the north end of the, of the Temple Mount. It's away from the Dome of the Rock. It would not interfere with it. And John's measurements here, well, there is more than adequate space for what John has described here. And so, no, we don't need any extraordinary action for the temple, for this temple to be built that John's measuring. We are in a time period when it's not only reasonable, um, it's, it's even expected that uh, um, eventually it's going to happen. Israel's preparing for it. Uh, they're ready. They are ready with, with the foundation, with the stones to build the temple. They are ready with the instruments for it. Um, in fact, they have a place there that you can go visit that they have remanufactured most all of the instruments of worship, including... Uh, the uh, various uh, needs within the temple uh, the golden lamps is outside go look at it it's out it's even outdoors they put it in a large um, display and so uh, you you have all these things ready to go and ready to be implemented they have been studying it for almost a generation now of and preparing a priesthood for it and so, what do we need? We need a temple, we need an altar, we need some priests. And all three of those are just about ready to get up and running. All that it requires is one treaty. It's all we're waiting for. is one statement. And again, what it's going to need is for the fundamentalists of Islam to be eradicated or marginalized, taken out of the equation. It will require uh, something that will precipitate the need for Arab countries around them to have peace um, that will and the Palestinians certainly is the goad that that makes that possible and then it will require some building. But we're not looking for the total transference of the entire Temple Mount. We're looking for a very small portion of it and that portion is readily available. Um, there is a school for Islamic school to the north but all the Muslim uh, Commitments, the mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock is not a mosque, there's another mosque, are all south. There is nothing to the north that would prevent this. Uh, and you walk out there, it just looks like a grove, a garden. You have walk paths and nothing else. There's nothing else there in that entire region. And the uh, identification of the true uh, Golden Gate uh, was very exciting for everybody. Now, in addition to all this, we already have Israel there. They are actually not on the Temple Mount, they are in the Temple Mount. Um, There's a series of caves um, underneath the Temple Mount, and uh, they do not belong to Islamic entities. So Israel has access to all the caves underneath the Temple Mount, and they use them. If you go into those Temple Mount Caves, um, as long as you're not Muslim, you're allowed to go in there. Um, you go in and visit. Uh, you will find an area that is dedicated for the women to uh, pray. Uh, it is considered the area that's the closest spot to the temple. And uh, so they have set up a prayer site there. We always think about the Wailing Wall as being that place. But uh, for most Israelites, they recognize that it's really the closest places are inside the Temple Mount where they do have access. And today you can go and take a tour of them. Uh, They'll let you in there to some degree, but you certainly don't give access to all of it and just let to be freely walk around. That's just not permitted at this point. So the Temple Mount is ready. Everything is ready. Uh, Well, how long is this going to last? Well, it says for 42 months. Well, this is a big number that keeps going to come up in prophecy over and over again. This 42 months. Uh, That's three and a half years. And so where are we at in our study? We are at the point of the conclusion of the seven trumpets. We are waiting for the, the seventh trumpet to sound, which marks the end. We're not going to delay that. Um, although we're going to have information given to us, and it's going to take us several weeks to get through that information, uh, the delay between the 6th and 7th trumpet in terms of uh, the experience of those on earth is going to be very, very brief. Um, but there are going to be some events going on. But we're going to be introduced to some things that have been happening for the first three and a half years. But the last three and a half years, something's going to happen. It's going to be overrun by the Gentiles. It's going to be, as it's described here, uh, they'll tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And so for the last half of this, there's going to be a violation that uh, early on Israel's going to be allowed to build there. They're going to build very quickly. Um, You're talking about not years, but months. It'll take them months to put this building up and get it in full operation. Um, just a, a few months, their state commitment is that within eight months of getting a temple out, they could have a sacrifices there. That's their commitment. That's what they're saying they can do. Um, there is no doubt that that Israel will take every measure to do that. Um, and you've heard stories about trying to get a white heifer to red sorry red heifer white red heifer to dedicate it, and all the things are required that they're breeding this, and all those things are interesting. But fundamentally. Um, what's going to precipitate this is the act of the man of sin. Uh, setting forth a seven-year treaty that he is going to violate halfway through. And so the 42 months represents really the last half in which the abomination desolation is going to be set up there. That here Israel is so excited, and they're not going to be able to worship there for seven years. They're only going to worship there for the first half. The last half of this period of time is is going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to tread the holy city underfoot. And that is not the condition today. It is not the condition, you might say of the Temple Mount, it is, but it isn't, because Israel controls the Temple Mount. They really do. They control access to it, but they can't take possession of it. And because of what it would create. And so they um, have full control of a piece of property that they themselves won't step on. There's the big signs there. Rabbi so-and-so and and Rabbi so-and-so and and Rabbi so-and-so. You know, we would condemn any Jewish person for stepping on this unconsecrated mount at this time. And uh, very staunch about that. And so they control the complete access to this, but they won't step on it until, at least some of it belongs to them. That they can set it aside. But it's going to be brief. And it's going to be violated. And so for 42 months, it'll be tread underfoot, it'll be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. So that's going to happen. Also, at this midpoint, as we take a kind of a deep breath before the seventh trumpet, we are introduced to two characters that we're going to look at a little bit more next week. And uh, we don't know if uh, <laughs> they are part of the 144,000 or in addition to, I kind of hold the position they're in addition to. But uh, we find that uh, in verse 3, there's going to be two witnesses. Uh, that at this point, they're going to, they are in their ministry. It says, I'll give power to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Uh, again, we factor that out and we find three and a half years. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the, the God of the earth, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So we have a another reference this three and a half years that that, uh, seems to be referencing the first three and a half years that in addition to all the activity going on with the trumpets you have these two men and their prophetic ministry and uh, that they are going to be speaking and the question is who are they speaking to? Well, um, many people have identified these as Moses and Elijah that is how they're going to be described. Um, We know of only two men out of the Old Testament who um, did not experience death, right? That would be Enoch and Elijah. Um, But this is what the people are going to be calling them. And um, we understand their ministry is not to the church. It's not a church-age ministry. It is a ministry that is very Jewish. And it is very specific it is against the nations on behalf of the Jewish people. And they rise to uh, ministry during this time period. And we find them uh, engaged as the Old Testament prophets were. They're clothed in sackcloth, uh, which immediately we're reminded of the prophets in their dress. That this is the traditional dress of a prophet in mourning for his people. Israel is in trouble, but they don't think they are. Israel's in deep trouble. They have come into an agreement with the man of sin. They have made a deal with the devil in the vernacular. And they're in deep trouble. They believe that because they have the Temple mouth, that everything is peachy keen and that everything is going their way. But in fact, they are in deep trouble. Because they still have denied their Messiah. They still have rejected Jesus Christ. And so here these two witnesses are out preaching and can you imagine of any time period that they are less likely to be appreciated by the Jewish people. We have the Temple Mount. We have our temple. We can re-implement sacrifices. We have all this going on for us and you guys got to show up here and in your sackcloth and preach at us. Not very popular, huh? Even among the Jewish people, and so what is their prophecy? What, what does it entail? Well, it certainly entails a warning to Israel that you have not avoided God's judgment just because you have access to the Temple Mount, just because you have all of this does not mean that you are right with God. And that is not going to be a message that's appreciated by the Jews. It certainly is not going to be a message appreciated by the Gentiles when they are going to be walking around uh, speaking against that treaty that has brought peace to the Middle East for the first time. And they're going to be ones speaking against it. And so, uh, they have opposition. The opposition comes against them. They can't stand. It says fire comes out of them mouth. They're able to destroy their enemies uh, with their words. And we find uh, them all falling away. And no one can withstand them. They have this ongoing ministry that will continue until it's finished. They are able to bring... Uh, Drought. They're able to turn water to blood, which immediately reminds us of what happened in Egypt, uh, and it should immediately also remind us of the trumpets. Uh, and so, in addition to the one third of the water being turned to blood, fresh water and salt water, you also have these guys making it worse, all in an effort to communicate something to Israel, and that has to be a warning. Now, whether the 144,000 respond to that preaching at this point, we are not told. Or if they have been, you know, following after the Lamb the entire time. But we do find that that, uh, they are presented to us as a full engaged group in chapter 14. But remember, chapter 14, we still haven't gotten to the bold judgments. So we're still in that halfway point. And so the two witnesses have their testimony And it's not going to be appreciated by anybody. And everybody's going to want them gone. And finally, when the time is right, down to the day, when the day is completed, and I I have to believe this is connected to the abomination of desolation entering into the temple, that these two are slaughtered. They are finally killed when no one could kill them. And this doesn't create any mourning. This doesn't create any sadness. It only creates cause for rejoicing. And again, uh, the activity here of chapter 11, uh, years and years ago, was spiritualized and symbolized um, because certainly it's not something everybody could watch. Well, now we know everyone will watch it. Everyone can watch it, right? Just, I'm sure they're going to dedicate... Channel to it um, not just on TV but on the internet I'm sure there will be multiple sites where you can sit and watch the dead bodies rotting in Jerusalem to celebrate not a different it's, it's almost laughable to think about it do you know if there's a website you can go to to watch fast food rot did you know that there's a dedicated website, so you can go and see what happens to fast food when it's left out. And it has hamburgers and fries from all these different restaurants, and they're all labeled. And it's just continuous feed. You can just, there's, there's no activity. Uh, I love, you know, If a fly shows up or anything, you just sit there and watch, and it's just a live camera on fast food. And it's trying to tell you something that, that has so many preservatives in it, it never goes by, bad. Um, We can talk about the science of why that's not really good science, but um, it's there. So a dedicated site is no big deal to us, and we're the first generation that it's no big deal to. We are the first generation that this is no big deal to. When I was a young person, it was a big deal still. I mean we had some satellite feeds from around the world, but they were really just getting going. Now my kids don't even think anything of this. Right? Of course you can watch anything. I can I can just Google satellite it and I can <laughs> Does it really unnerve you that you can just Google satellite your backyard and anybody can do it? That always bugs. No big deal. And for three and a half years, they're going to celebrate these people's death. Why? Because they are in this condition of rejecting. They are embittered. They are antagonistic. They are not moving to salvation. They did not. No one responded unless it's the 144,000 that were sealed beforehand. Possibly they responded to these two and took up this ministry but I would contend that the description of them in chapter 14, which is in the same time frame, finds them being hunted down and slain as well. And so these two have this witness, have this testimony. We have the an angel who's going to share the gospel later on, but again, no one responds. The only response we get is, I can't wait till they're dead. And once they're dead, we're going to have a party. Globally. Maybe this guy is turning the tide on all these plagues that have hit us. I mean, if you kill those two and stop them from turning water to blood, maybe we can turn this whole thing around. For whatever reasons, for whatever cause, they are celebrated. And of course, the problem is, is they don't stay dead. <laughs> but they stay dead for a very specific period of time, Correct? three and a half days as a representation of how much time is left. How much time is left for the earth to respond and to be uh, without their Savior, to be under judgment, to be under penalty, to be under wrath. And after three and a half days, it says the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear, fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. The second time, the enemies of God have seen and heard Christ and watched us and was like us to be ascending into heaven. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake seven thousand people were killed. and The rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second wall was passed. Behold, the third wall is coming quickly. And you say, "Well, what the land of this?" Says they gave glory to the God of heaven. Yes, they did in their fear. And again, I would contend that this is the focus and the attention here is on Jerusalem. That those in Jerusalem who saw this. Gave glory to the God in heaven. And I believe we set off a group of people who are going to be the hunted for the next three and a half years who are going to isolate themselves so they are ready when Jesus comes back to become his nation for the millennial kingdom. At this point, they understand it It is like it's dawned on them that we have been fooled. We, We have been following the wrong horse. We've been following this man of sin who gave us this treaty and we have been ignoring these two and now these two have shown us our error. But it's too late. It's too late at this point, really. Because the treaty is going to be broken and everything is going to be poured out against them as we're going to see down the road. But we find this ministry time very Jewish And the whole perspective of these chapters is really focused on getting Israel to recognize that this is the man of sin. This is not to your benefit. Your Messiah has not come. uh, He is not anywhere close to that. um, You're going to have to look for him three and a half years from now and be ready because you're going to have to suffer. And that will be the condition of Israel for the balance of this period. Is they're going to have to uh, hide Um, when the temple mount is desolated um, and the whole world rejoices and follow after and and all religion is going to become the enemy not just Jewish religion but all religion as we're going to see when the woman rides the beast is uh, dehorsed so to speak unsaddled so we have a, a very important midpoint period that really sets the stage so that we understand who we're talking about. We're talking about Israel. The others are not redeemable. They're not in that condition. They are believing the lie. And they're celebrating. But the people in Jerusalem that see this happening, that, that see the resurrection, that see uh, and feel the earthquake, that recognize and hear the voice, recognize it all, they're, gonna, they're greatly afraid. They're going to glory to God. And cannot be confused with salvation, but rather of recognizing that we need to um, prepare ourselves for a different course of action. I don't know how anyone from Israel survives this seven years. And it can only be because of the ministry of these two men and the 144,000 that they survive. They will accept Christ in mass as a nation. They will receive him He will be their king. That is going to happen. But um, they have to survive till then. And uh, we're going to have some instructions for them of how to do that. The Old Testament prophets have been replete with that. What to do when you see this, when you see this, when you see this, be ready. And now, finally, we have some people that are starting to think maybe I should be ready. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you your love for us, and we thank you again for your word, and we uh, just pray in thanksgiving that you are faithful, and we see the evidence that what is laid out here in your word that was ridiculed uh, just a generation or two ago, uh, even just a few decades ago within this generation, uh, we see that it's completely reasonable, and we almost expect it. And so we know that our days are short and we pray that we might be of a spirit of those who want to follow after you. They might not find in us a spirit of resistance, of disobedience, of rebellion, of bitterness, that we might have that spirit that would listen to your prophecies and respond by faith in Christ Jesus' name.